Paris, France, the summer of 1898. Physicists Pierre and Marie Curie are hard at work inside their laboratory in the outskirts of the city. Although calling it a laboratory may be kind of a stretch, since it's more of a wooden shed with a leaky glass roof and an asphalt floor. Oh, and in its previous life, it had the distinction of being used by medical students to dissect cadavers. But unlike their unsightly workspace, these two scientists are unexpectedly attractive. Pierre is a tall 39-year-old Frenchman with salt and pepper hair and a stylish beard. Today he dons his favorite plain brown suit. Marie, 31, is a modest beauty who keeps her hair up in an unpretentious style and like her husband, chooses to wear simple clothes like the long cotton blue dress she wears today. The two are attempting to do what few men and no women have ever done. Extract and isolate elements. Marie would later describe the scientific work she does with her husband in the lab this way. One of our pleasures was to enter our workshop at night. Then, all around us, we would see the luminous silhouettes of the beakers and capsules that contained our products. Okay, to be clear, the luminous silhouettes she's talking about are actually byproducts of the elements they're working with. Radioactive elements. You see, in the late 1800s, nobody really knew about the effects of radioactivity on the human body. So, not surprisingly, even these two extremely bright scientists are handling the radioactive elements without any precautions like a ventilated air system to remove the poisonous gases, or even protective clothing and gloves to keep them free from radiation exposure. They are so cavalier about the radioactive materials they work with they even keep vials of the stuff in their pockets and desk drawers. In fact, more than a hundred years after their experiments with these elements, their work notebooks are still so radioactive that they have to be kept in lead-lined boxes and handled only while wearing radioactive protective gear. After completing their last measurements of the day, the Curies gather up their research documents and are ready to reveal their findings to the scientific establishment. Now, before we get into exactly what the Curies delivered to the world of science, and before some of you click this podcast off, because yes, now you know, there will be some physics and some general science in the story, I want to assure you that this is first and foremost a love story. A love story about two people whose intense feelings for one another and drive to make a difference in the world help spark one of the most successful collaborations between a husband and wife in the history of mankind. And despite their relationship having to overcome international borders, sexism, and the often intolerant mores of the day, it's a love story that led to discoveries and findings that will change the face of science forever, while at the same time, help make the world a better place. I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think 
are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. Today's episode breaks down the incredible chemistry and bond between scientists and Nobel Prize winners, Pierre and Marie Curie. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. Pierre and Marie Curie are known as the first couple of radioactivity. In fact, in a published article on July 18, 1898, Marie herself coined the very term radioactivity. Before that, the word never even existed. It's the Curie's tireless and dedicated work together that leads them to the discoveries of two new elements on the periodic table, radium and polonium. Their findings paved the way for the modern X-ray machine, the treatment of cancer via radiation therapy, nuclear power plants, and countless other advancements whose existence can be traced to radiation technology. And although the Curie's scientific work together is world-renowned, it's actually the lesser-talked-about love and respect they had for each other that radiated from their souls and gave them the power to accomplish what they set out to in life. But the path to add two of the most important elements to our periodic table doesn't start in France, where all those discoveries are made. It begins in Poland. Marie Curie's birth name is Maria Salomea Sklodowska. She was born in Warsaw, Poland on November 7, 1867. The youngest of five children, both her parents are teachers who believe deeply in the importance of education, especially for young Maria, whom they call Manya, as she might be the brightest of the bunch. But at this time in history, Warsaw is controlled by the iron fist of the Russian czars, whose oppressive Russification policies make it extremely difficult for Polish families like Maria's to thrive. Life gets even harder when before the age of 10, Maria's mother and one of her older sisters unexpectedly pass away. Still, Maria's intellect and her curious mind serve her well as she becomes valedictorian of her high school class at the age of just 15. When it's time to attend college, although Maria is an extremely smart and capable student, she's a woman in 19th century Poland. Therefore, not allowed to attend the male-only University of Warsaw. If Maria is going to achieve her dream of one day studying physics at the famed Parisian University, the Sorbonne, she must come up with a way to continue her education outside her current male-dominated world. So after high school, she moves full steam ahead with the only higher education classes available to her. 
inside what is known as Warsaw's Floating University, a set of underground informal classes held in relative secret. To make ends meet while trying to continue her studies, Maria takes on some of the more familiar female vocations of the times, teacher and governess. Then, with the help of her older sister, Branya, who married a Frenchman and moved to France, Maria's dream becomes a reality. In November of 1891, at the age of 24, she is accepted to the Sorbonne, one of only 23 women of the nearly 2,000 students. She graduates first in her class with a degree in physics in the spring of 1894, becoming the very first woman to do so. It's at this time that Maria, who has now adopted the more French-appropriate name Marie, is commissioned to perform a study on different types of steel and their magnetic properties. The only problem, she has no lab to work in. This is how she crosses paths with one Pierre Curie. Pierre Curie was born in Paris, France on May 15, 1859. He is the youngest of two boys in a wealthy but extremely loving Parisian family. And despite being a dreamer whose style of learning is not well adapted to formal education, Pierre is accepted into the Sorbonne at the ripe age of 16 and obtains his degree in math just two years later. After graduation, along with his brother Jacques, Pierre designed several instruments for measuring magnetic fields and electricity, instruments that will play a key role in the important discoveries to come. At the time he meets Marie, he's an internationally known physicist and physics professor at a local Parisian university, which gives him access to ample laboratory space and equipment. Hence why a mutual friend invites them both to his home for what I guess you could call a blind, maybe I can use some of your lab space, date. Although the introduction of Marie and Pierre has a professional slant, almost immediately it leads to something more romantic. Marie describes her first impression of Pierre this way. I noticed the grave and gentle expression on his face, as well as a certain abandon in his attitude, suggesting the dreamer absorbed in his reflections. His speech, rather slow and deliberate, his simplicity and his smile, at once grave and youthful, inspired confidence. At first, their conversation is scientific in nature, but then it moves to something more social and humanitarian. What becomes clear is that despite an eight-year age gap and being from different countries, these two actually have a lot in common. So after their encounter, Marie will not only have her lab space, but also an unexpected new admirer. Pierre asks if he may call upon this shy yet witty fellow physicist with the French name and the Polish accent. Marie happily agrees. Over time, their mutual passion for science and research brings them increasingly closer, and they begin to develop deeper and deeper feelings for one another. A year after they meet, Pierre proposes marriage, but much to his surprise, she doesn't accept. Marie says she loves Pierre and would like to be his wife, but at the same time she's extremely patriotic, so wants to return to her native country of Poland to help the Polish people through her work as a scientist. Not wanting to lose Marie, Pierre declares that he's ready to move back with her to Poland, 
even if it means being reduced to sleeping in separate rooms in a shared flat, or forgoing his career in science for one as a teacher of French to the Polish people. But shortly after the unaccepted proposal, Marie departs for Poland on her yearly summer holiday to see her family with a plan to start making preparations for a full-time move back to her homeland. I think it's important to understand Pierre's frame of mind at this time. You see, some 15 years before meeting Marie, Pierre had pretty much given up at the very idea of ever falling in love again after his heart was broken by the untimely death of a woman he had hoped to marry one day. Now, much to his surprise, Cupid's arrow has struck again, and he's in love. So Pierre trades in his scientific instruments for a pen and paper and begins to write Marie love letters. But these love letters are not filled with the romantic and tender prose one might think. That's because Pierre knows Marie well enough not to add too many sentiments of ordinary romance in his writings. So instead, he woos her intelligence, her sense of vocation, and her deep desire to do something important with her life. One of his written pleas to get the woman he loves to choose him and Paris over nationalism and Warsaw will remain close to Marie's heart for many years to come. Pierre writes, It would be a fine thing to pass our lives near each other, hypnotized by our dreams, your patriotic dream, our humanitarian dream, and our scientific dream. Now, yes, I know, this may not go down in history as the most romantic writing in the history of love letters, but for someone like Marie, who thinks more defiantly than most, these words bring to her a vivid evocation of practicality with just a sprinkling of romanticism. The bottom line is, this single sentence tells Marie that Pierre knows her and understands her. Marie would later describe the letters Pierre would write to her like this. No one of them was very long, for he had the habit of a concise expression, but all written in a spirit of sincerity and with evident anxiety to make the one he desired as his companion know him as he was. The very quality of the expression has always seemed to me so remarkable. But in the end, it would not take great prose to get Marie to stay in Paris. Because, lucky for Pierre, and not so lucky for Marie and the Polish people, Russian oppression remains in full force, making Marie's decision much, much easier. Despite her distinguished education and her vast knowledge of science and math, Marie would not be allowed to work at any of Poland's universities for the same reason she couldn't study there nearly a decade earlier. Gender equality in the Polish higher education system just hadn't caught up with the rest of Europe's. Marie can now follow her heart and return to Paris to accept Pierre's proposal. She would later say this about her choice to marry Pierre. Our work drew us closer and closer until we were both convinced that neither of us could find a better life companion. She goes on to say, His thoughtful expression and the directness of his look were strongly attractive, and this attraction was increased by his kindliness and gentleness of character. 
So on July 26, 1895, Pierre and Marie are married in a simple civil ceremony at the town hall in the Parisian suburb of Sioux, where Pierre's parents lived. In a manner fitting of these two unsentimental and unconventional souls, the service involves no religious rituals, including the ever-symbolic exchanging of the rings. And instead of wearing a decorative bridal gown, which her mother-in-law offers to buy her, Marie wears a simple dark blue cotton dress, explaining she wants to wear something practical, something she can wear again in the laboratory after the ceremony. And in true Marie form, she does exactly that and wears her wedding dress to work in the lab for years to come. The happy couple is given some money as a wedding present, which they use to buy his and her bicycles. Despite being bookish scientists who enjoy spending hours on end in their laboratories, Marie and Pierre are actually both nature lovers who love biking and hiking in the woods and talking about the wonders of the world. The following years of married life for the Curies becomes quietly predictable, if not monotonous. Their life is filled with scientific work and study, interrupted by the occasional bicycle trip to the sea or the mountains or the countryside. As companions of the heart and the scientific mind, the two are rarely, if ever, apart. At the same time, they keep no real friendships, instead preferring mainly to socialize with Pierre's family. But then, in 1897, physics turns to biology, and the Curie household begins to expand after the birth of their daughter Irene. She is followed by her sister Eve, seven years later, in 1904. And although, by all accounts, the Curies are loving and devoted parents, having children does little to slow down their intense work schedule or change their desire to break down scientific barriers. So in and around the time Irene enters their life, Marie begins working with the elements and minerals that would lead the pair down a path towards the yet-to-be-discovered concept of radioactivity. For a time, Pierre continues to focus his attention on his work at the university. But as Marie begins to show progress in her research, he decides to join her. He does this not only because he feels like he can help her, but also because he just loves being with his wife, especially in the lab. Marie would later describe their time working in the lab like this. A scientist in his laboratory is not a mere technician. He is also a child confronting natural phenomena that impress him as though they were fairy tales. Marie carries out most of the chemical separations of the substances they work with, while Pierre undertakes the measurements after each successive step, often using the electrometer he and his brother invented years earlier. To an outsider, separating and measuring electricity levels of various elements and minerals day after day may seem like torture. But Marie would later say these early years of scientific research in the lab were, quote, the best and happiest years of their lives. In December of 1898, after three long years of painstaking work, Marie and Pierre are finally ready to announce their discoveries to the world. By working with several tons of a uranium-rich mineral and ore called pitchblende, they're able to isolate small amounts of two previously undiscovered radioactive elements radium and polonium. 
polonium, named after Marie's beloved Poland, and radium from the Latin word for ray. Not only does the scientific community accept their tremendous achievements, but the work is found to be so groundbreaking that it's nominated for a Nobel Prize in physics. There's only one problem. When their work is submitted to the Nobel Prize Committee by the French Academy of Sciences, Marie's name is not included in the actual nomination. Almost certainly because once again, women like Marie are making professional strides faster than society is willing to accept them. But times are changing. So when one of the Nobel's nominating committee members realizes the slight, he writes a letter to Pierre informing him of his wife's snub. Pierre immediately then jumps into action. He goes on a campaign insisting to influential people on the Nobel Committee that Marie had in fact originated their research, conceived experiments, and generated the theories about the true nature of radioactivity. Pierre's relentless insistence that an injustice is being done to his wife and her pioneering work prompts an inquiry that eventually leads to Marie's name being added back onto the prize. Then, in 1903, along with physicist Antoine-Henri Becquerel, who had previously and separately done work that led to the Curie's discoveries, Marie and Pierre received the Nobel Prize in Physics. Marie instantaneously becomes the first woman ever to be awarded a Nobel Prize in any category. Although they're invited to Stockholm to receive the actual prize, the Curies decline the invitation, claiming they're just too busy with their work. Plus, the shy and always humble Pierre has no real love for public adoration and ceremony. In addition to the instant fame that comes from receiving such a prestigious award, there are also a few perks. They get a share of the Nobel Prize money, worth well into the six figures in today's dollars. They get better equipment, better lab space. Pierre even garners a full-time professorship at the Sorbonne. But the biggest perk that comes from making such a famous and important discovery is their opportunity to patent and make money from their extraction methods for radium. This patent would mean the Curies, along with their children, and maybe even their children's children, could live in financial comfort, if not sheer affluence, for the rest of their lives. Marie has a simple but amusing explanation for making a choice that would leave her and her family in relative poverty for years to come. She says, It belongs to the people. Radium was not to enrich anyone. Get it? Enrich? Radium? Very clever, Marie. But the financial sacrifice the Curies make by not patenting their work isn't the only fallout that comes after they discover radioactivity. There's also the fact that for the remainder of their lives, both Pierre and Marie are plagued by constant ailments. Burn cracked skin, muscle aches, leg shakes, and chronic fatigue to name a few, all undoubtedly caused by repeated exposure to high doses of radiation. But a lack of riches and constant physical maladies pale in comparison to the biggest tragedy that occurs in the Curie's love story. That honor occurs on April 19, 1906, after Pierre is coming from a luncheon meeting. As he crosses a busy Paris street in a rainstorm, likely lost in his own thoughts, 
he slips and falls, then is run over by a passing horse-drawn wagon loaded with six tons of military uniforms and guns. He is killed instantly at just 46 years old. Marie is devastated. She is now left to raise her two young daughters without her husband, her scientific partner, her fellow dreamer. With Pierre gone for the first time in her life, Marie starts keeping a diary. In this entry, written shortly after his death, we see just how much Pierre's death affects her. She writes, In the street I walk as if hypnotized, without attending to anything. I shall not kill myself. I have not even the desire for suicide. But among all these vehicles, is there not one to make me share the fate of my beloved? Offered a widow's stipend by the French government and a chance to sit back, relax, and raise her children, Marie yet again throws convention into the wind and declines to accept the money. Instead, she accepts an offer that would come a few months later. An invitation to take up her husband's position as professor of general physics in the Faculty of Sciences at the Sorbonne. After the tragedy, Marie would explain her desire to get back into the lab this way. Crushed by the blow, I did not feel able to face the future. I could not forget, however, what my husband used to say, that even deprived of him, I ought to continue my work. Although her work after Pierre's death never brings in any new discoveries or innovations, in 1911, Marie wins her second Nobel Prize, this time in chemistry for the discoveries of polonium and radium. Over the next three decades, Marie continues her research and teaching, as well as watching her daughter Irene follow in her parents' footsteps and become a fellow scientist. Unfortunately, Marie passes away on July 4, 1934, just one year before Irene takes home her Nobel Prize for chemistry the first and only mother and daughter ever to do so. As we come to a close of this unforgettable love story, I am reminded of Pierre's letter to Marie, where he wrote, It would be a fine thing to pass our lives near each other, hypnotized by our dreams. In the end, Pierre got his wish. He got to marry Marie, and pass their lives near each other, even if it was tragically cut short. And the two were also very much hypnotized by one another's dreams. Those wonderful, wonderful dreams. And luckily for the world, they were. Because Pierre and Marie Curie ended up producing two wildly successful children who also made their mark on society, shattered gender discrimination barriers, delivered breakthroughs that pushed the boundaries of science forever, and maybe, most importantly, made life a little better for all of us. If you ask me, I'd say that's the kind of love and love story dreams are made of. How do we get, how do we get so brave? How do we get, how do we get so brave? Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. 
And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.